Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Richard Reeves. Richard is a writer, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and is the author of Of Boys and Men. During our conversation, Richard presents data detailing how boys and men are falling behind in education and employment, that men represent three out of every four deaths of despair, and the confusion over what is good about being a man and what it means to be a man as gender roles have significantly changed. Richard also talks about the phenomenon of both Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate, why Peterson and Tate have gained such an audience, his primary concern of checked out rather than acting out men, the influence of video games and pornography, the effect of divorce on men, the evolutionary point and purpose of the male sex, and what can be done to help problems of modern men. I think Richard's book will be a seminal work of our era. It puts the data to what is already known by millions of men. The isolation, the detachment, the loneliness, the disconnection, the feeling of being unnecessary, the silent despair. A healthy civilization encourages, designs, and incentivizes all of its citizens to flourish, and Richard's book should help raise our consciousness to the reality of the lives of so many of our fellow men. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Richard Reeves. Richard, I have so been looking forward to this conversation. Um, congratulations, first of all, on the success of the book. Uh, I, um, it's a real privilege and it's an honor to be able to do this. Welcome to the show. It's, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you for having me on and thank you for those kind words. Absolutely. I would love to start kind of at the beginning for you. And I know you're a scholar. I think you're a self-described wonk. You know, I'd love to get the story from your perspective as to when you thought you were hitting on the fact that there was something amiss with boys and men in our society. How do you make sense of that story? When did you begin to think that there was something worth writing about here? Well, to be honest, I've been interested in gender issues and you know, male-female relationships pretty much since the beginning of my of my career. But but I would say that uh, earlier in my career it was through a more traditionally feminist lens, mm. uh, and and I've wondered about and I have written back in the UK where I'm from, as you can probably tell by now. Um, I did write a little bit about how if we didn't equalize the work between men and women on the home front, we weren't going to get to equality. Uh, in the work in in the work front, and so I have been interested in these issues. But then, as I was doing work at Brookings on class and race and inequality, which has been really the sort of main thrust of my work over the last few years, I'm interested in family trends and education trends. I just kept stumbling across facts about boys and men that were more startling. I, they were just sharp. I knew some of the basic trends, but I didn't know how quite how bad things were, especially for some boys and men. And then I'm raising three boys as well. I've raised three boys to adulthood and on both sides of the pond. And so the dinner table conversations were quite often about how to be a man in this new world, you know, what's going on in schools. Uh, and so in the end, the line between those conversations started blurring. And I felt an absence of a conversation grounded in facts 
mostly away from partisanship, just about what's really going on with boys and men and why, and that's conducted in good faith. And so it felt to me as if that was potentially a, a contribution I could make. And I came to believe that it was a, that it was this is a necessary part of the debate. If we want to make progress, we can't do that if we continue if we continue, which I think we really have, to ignore these issues or neglect them, or rather that only I would say some in many cases some quite irresponsible parties will exploit it. So, so I felt in some ways that I ought to write it. And then, of course, there's always risk with this kind of book. I don't want to overstate the bravery thing. You know, there's this whole thing. You're so brave. I'm like, well. I mean, my, my great grandfather was wounded in the Battle of the Somme, and my grandfather fought in France. And so I'm, you know, I, I sometimes conjure them up from the grave and tell them about the bad day I had when some nasty tweets were sent my way or some horror <laughs> emails. And I, I try to imagine how sympathetic they would be to me. So I don't want to overstate that at all. Um, but I did have a bunch of people saying, look, no, no, you don't want to go here. This is too dangerous. And I thought, really? You're kidding me. In that case, mm -hmm. I really have to do it. Right, because if 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 I can't do it with the the position I'm in, then then we're in real trouble. And so, in some ways, people saying, "Well, be careful," spurred me to do it, and not out of some sense of vainglory or an attempt to outdo my you know predecessors' bravery, but ju but just because I thought, well, in that case, if that's true, then we have a problem. Yeah, I think for people who have not yet read your book, it is just packed with data and charts, and is grounded, as you just mentioned, in fact, which is the basis for. You know any rational conversation about reality and what is happening on in the world and in our society. I'd love to just you know send this question to you, which is, what is the state of men and boys right now? You know, I, I, I understand the comments. I'm not surprised that you're getting some feedback about the bravery and and taking on a subject matter that is uh controversial to say the least and i think for myself just in getting more familiar with the data that's in the book i think a lot of people who are alive today especially older people my parents generation would not expect the data to be revealing what it is revealing and maybe it makes sense to start with education specifically what's going on there um to me it seems like the facts and the data and the performance and the achievement between the sexes has inverted in about 40 years, that the place men used to hold about 40 or 50 years ago has now been flipped. What do we know about what's going on with, with boys right now in education specifically? Yeah, I think that's that's basically right. That's the basic story. And and again, it's one of the reasons why I thought it was worth drawing more attention to some of these trends, because I, I don't, it's no one's job to draw attention to these trends. Uh, and so whilst there are lots of institutions who do a very good job of drawing attention to the problems of women and girls, and it's literally their job, um, and I commend them for their work, there, are, there aren't really institutions whose job it is to highlight gender inequalities when they go the other way. And so I think that it's it's interesting how surprised I was surprised by some of these facts too. So let's put a couple of data points on the on the table. In 1972, when Title IX was passed, which was the legislation to promote women and girls in higher education, men were about 13 percentage points more likely to get a four-year college degree than women. And now women are 15 percentage points more likely to get a four-year college degree than men. They, women caught up through the 70s and the 80s, overtook within a couple of decades and just kept going. And so now we have more gender inequality in higher education than we did in 1972 when Title IX was passed. It's just the other way around. Uh, and so there's been this great overtaking, essentially, 
of women uh, out past men and of girls past boys. In high school, there's actually been a long-standing edge for girls in terms of high school GPA, but the gap has really opened up uh, in recent decades. And so now if you if you rank high schoolers by their GPA and you look at the top 10% by GPA, two-thirds of them are girls, and the bottom 10%, two-thirds of them are boys with a pretty linear relationship in between the two. We could go on, but it, it, the the basic story is that on pretty much every measure at pretty much every level and in pretty much every advanced economy, women didn't just catch up with men or girls with boys. They blew right past them. Mm. And it's worth saying no one expected no one expected that. When we were fighting for women and girls in the 70s and 80s in education, nobody said, wait, what if the lines just keep going? Mm. What do we do then? And so there's actually just been no real conversation about this new world because nobody predicted it. We were so we were focused on parity. No one expected the lines to keep going and for this new gender gap to emerge in any other direction. So we're not psychologically equipped for it. We're not institutionally equipped for it. So, And I think we're really trying to catch up. We're trying to catch up with the facts on the ground. Yeah. I know one of the elements to this that you talk about in the book, which is relation to the and trying to answer the question as to why this has happened. And I think I, I think it's your belief that, you know, women in school and academic performance on average tend to possess qualities that make their success in that forum much more likely than men. That when you equalize the playing field, women by nature of their conscientiousness and um, other personality factors tend to be more organized, be more capable of performing in in that kind of a setting. What what is going on there? How do you explain how this has happened to women accelerating and men simultaneously falling behind? What what is the best answer we have as to why that's happened? Yeah. Well, first of all, I appreciate your emphasis that these are differences on average, Dan. <laughs> and and ma- maybe we maybe we can. Get- give ourselves permission to just presume that that is in every answer we give over, distributions overlap and on average because i find sometimes when i'm talking about talking about the book i'm so aware that someone might take one bit of it and say he didn't say on average but they end up saying on average on average on average and it's really boring for the listeners <laughs> <So> maybe <laughs> really just can we just edit that in later right i so think we should start with that yes yes right. just everything's on average because it's because of course it is an important point that, that they do that they are on average but yeah i think in some ways one of the most provocative claims i make is that the education system is female friendly it favors girls and women in structural ways and that is a shocking claim because the education system was designed by and largely led by and dominated by men for pretty much forever and so that's a shocking claim so i'll defend it in the following way which is that the sorts of skills that uh, girls develop uh, more than boys and earlier than boys are the ones you referred to conscientiousness attention to de- attention to detail ability to sit still focus on task future orientation the prefrontal cortex bit of the brain develops earlier in girls and they just have a natural advantage anyway so they're better and earlier um so i describe the prefrontal cortex of in the brain as the bit that tells you to do your chemistry homework <laughs> and the bit that rem- the bit that remembers you have chemistry homework and the bit that cares about your high school GPA, because at some sense, your future self might benefit from a higher high school GPA. And those are just more developed in girls uh, and young women, and they develop earlier in girls and young women. So just from a neuroscientific perspective, they have that advantage. Now, 
the immediate response to that, well, if that's true, why have we only seen these gaps opening up in recent years? Because that's not new. And I think the answer to that is sexism. Hmm. The truth is that when women's educational opportunities and aspirations were capped by a sexist society, we couldn't see the natural advantages. The fact that girls were better than boys didn't show up when they weren't going to college, but now they are. So eventually we took the brakes off. You had these artificial brakes on girls and women. We took them off and they flew by. And to use your analogy, you know, we leveled the playing field and in doing so discovered that the girls and women were better players. And now they're smoking the boys for that reason. So it's not deliberate, but it's just an irony that it took the women's movement to reveal the fact yeah. that the education system slightly favors girls and women. The other two things I'd briefly touch on are the fact that the education system is becoming more female dominated on the teaching front. Um, only 24% of K-12 teachers now are men. That's down from 33% in the 80s. So we are seeing more, and only one in 10 elementary school teachers are male. And there is some evidence that having male teachers helps boys especially in subjects like English. And thirdly, there's been an increased focus on what you might think of as book learning, more academic, narrow kinds of learning, and less emphasis on vocational styles of learning, more hands-on learning. And that typically, that latter type of learning tends to favor boys a bit more. They're a bit better at learning by doing than learning by sitting. Uh, and so those trends together have ended up uh, creating a system that I think is quite clearly more, more favorable to girls and women. Yeah, I know another stat that you have cited before is that I believe it's something like 2% of kindergarten teachers, 2% are male. And mm -hmm. you you speak about, I think it's Air Force pilots, that it's three times the number of women are Air Force pilots or pilots in the military uh, flying jets and so forth than there are kindergarten teachers teaching young children. And I know just in having conversations with other people that I was going to speak with you and bringing up this subject and just in my own life in the last few years, you know, anytime I would bring up ideas that you explore in your book, because I, I had picked up on this in the past few years from some other articles and books that men were not doing particularly well, there was a palpable sense in conversation oftentimes with even close family friends and people who are extremely close to me who are women who are older and you to me i could sense a reaction to them of fuck them you know who cares mm. it's it's about time that women take hold of the reins of power and men shut up and not you know be a um rising you know um be in rising consistent places of power that it's it's about time that something like this happened how do you respond to people like that who learn about these statistics and aren't alarmed by it they're thrilled they're thrilled by the fact that there has been such a a, a growth of female accomplishment and opportunities what's your response to that well the first thing i say is i i get it I mean, I think that that visceral reaction is is well founded, yeah. given given the work that women have had to do to get to this point, and and it's essentially happens in a blink of an eye, and so there is this sense of like, okay, so wait, so women have just gotten ahead on certain measures, you know, not on every measure, which we might get to, and you're already turning around and doing the kind of you know, oh my God, boys and men are in crisis, like tiny violins time. And so I get that. And interesting, there is a bit of a generational gap here too. I think that I've noticed that it is among slightly older women. 
um, where you get that strongest reaction. And I think that's because they were the ones that had to fight so hard. Yeah, They just went through the trenches in a way that younger women haven't had to. I mean, younger women have really benefited from the incredible work that that, that older generation of feminists were engaged in. So I do think that, you know, that's, and I, I think given what they had to fight for, you know, I have a colleague who's considerably older than me who you know, was li- literally didn't go to college, was told to become a secretary and ended up with a PhD and working in the White House and, you know, one of the most senior people at Brookings who's in yeah. her 80s now. And and she talks about this, what it was like for her as a woman in economics. <laughs> she 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 can't get over how the world has changed. And but that's such a rapid change. That's the first thing I would say. But the second thing is, like, we want everyone to flourish. That was the point of the liberation movement. And and once you've gotten past that initial sense of "Are you kidding me?" Yeah, like really, if you just like yeah, most people when it comes down to it do worry about the people who are suffering. And if it's particularly we might get into this working class men, especially black boys and men, the boys from the back with the least are really struggling. And that's just a fact. And so are you really going to say, well, we're not going to care about men's problems for what? I don't know, a thousand years or something, right? Then we'll call it quits. No one really thinks like that. That's the equivalent of a parent saying they care less about their son or their daughter. They don't. And most ordinary people actually are perfectly open to this conversation, which is, hey, there's a whole bunch of things that we still need to do for girls and women, but I'm really worried about these things about boys and men. And I, I think it's actually borderline cruel to just say, yeah, men are more, three or four times more likely to kill themselves. But, you know, patriarchy. I, I just, I, I don't think that's how many people actually think. So once you get past that initial reaction, as long as you're grounded by it, and as long as you honor that reaction, I think that's key because I think yeah. a lot of people are like, no, here's the facts. It's outrageous. You know, here's the, I've the you know, you're wrong. And no, no, that reaction of like, I, the, are you kidding me reaction is a perfectly understandable and honorable reaction to this conversation. And, and we don't push it away. So I understand it. I embrace it. I feel it, but then let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> just sort of dovetailing on onto that. I remember reading in a book once that when Sandra Day O'Connor graduated from Stanford Law School, and I think it was 1953, which is the same year my mom was born, her only professional opportunity she was presented with when she, upon graduating was to be a secretary. You know that that wasn't that long ago, and I I'd love and I'm 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 grateful that you brought this up because I would love to dig into the this the suffering the the stories and the knowledge that we have about the experience of young men and boys and, and young men in our society. And, and you just talked about the suicide rate and you go into the deaths of despair in the country, which I, I think in general are labeled as overdoses and suicides. And three out of every four people who fit into that category, I believe, are are men. Um, oh what what do we know about the suffering of, of modern day men? What what who are these people and what tends to be their story? So the one, the, the men who are suffering the most are, are the ones who've been most affected by recent social and economic trends. The, the impact of free trade and um, automation on, on male industries in particular has been really significant. And so you'll see in a lot of communities where there's basically been a hollowing out of male jobs in particular and difficulty on the part of men in adapting to the to that new world. And so there is that sense of a loss of status that, that went with that tra- traditional 
uh, status within the labor market. And then that can cause all kinds of problems with family formation and just general detachment and anomie, to use a, a, the kind of sociologist phrase. But deaths of despair gets really close to it. I think it's interesting. It's and also alcohol-related illnesses. Now, men account for about 70% of opioid deaths as well. As you say, three times higher risk of these general areas of deaths of despair, between three and four times higher rate of suicide, uh, especially, and it's growing really fast among middle-aged men in particular. And it does seem to be the men who have been most affected by economic and social changes uh, in recent decades who are, who are most at risk of it. And opioids is a really interesting example, I think, because I, there were there are drugs that you take to go to go out partying, right? You take you might take MDMA or something because it's a great to go for a rave, and or just you want to but you want to think you're funnier, so you take cocaine or whatever. Those those are sort of drugs. There are before and night out drugs, but opioids are drugs of retreat. And one of the reasons why we have such high death rates from opioids is because there's no one there. The user dies alone, indoors, alone. And so to the extent that opioids are, they're about painkillers, but they're, they're, they're not just about this, maybe start as physical painkillers, but become almost existential painkillers. And so it's very troubling to me that so many men are opting for one kind of painkiller or another with obviously potentially fatal consequences. And so that's the group I'm most worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, in that regard, the deaths of despair, um, and I think that to look to to look at that and not see a specific gendered lens through which we have to examine the causes is just not to, is just not to see the data. It's it's hard to imagine any other field where you'd see a, like a more than three three to one difference in the risk ratio, and not say, okay, we might need a more gender sensitive response. Yeah, and I know you have spoken about this related to men who really are are seemingly opting out it isn't that they're flaming out they're not getting angry and often even though i know we have you know every month or two a story about um a mass shooter in the country who often fits kind of a lonely isolated man in general i think from what i've understood from your interviews you know it's more men who are opting out of the system altogether that they are alone they are you know, opting for these sort of isolating drugs, they're addicted to porn. Um, they they just don't seemingly have the motivation to go out into the world and continue to struggle anymore. They're you know playing a lot of video games. How do you make sense of how men are are getting there? You talked about automation and that that that's had a huge effect on men's inability to you know, compete economically in many circumstances. But in general, the the men who end up opting out of society, and I think you make this distinguishing in the book that for men who are graduating from the top schools, who have the top jobs, this doesn't necessarily seem to be an issue, that it seems to be trickling down the socioeconomic ladder, that that it's more likely that men in, in those categories will be um, afflicted by some of these issues. How do they get there? What's the yes. what's the best sense you make of that? Yes, I think that's that's the correct framing. I, I I think it's worth saying that even among like upper middle class men who are doing better educationally and economically and so on, it's not to suggest that we I'll use we here don't have any problems. I still we're having to renegotiate identity. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to live in a world very different to the one our fathers were in, uh, and respond to the changed you know, dating market and uh, marriage market for sure. But I, I just that's just much easier if you're affluent and well educated. I, I think you know, equality is much easier for the affluent. Mm-hmm. The, the men who are struggling most with the transition are the ones who have less economic power. 
and you do see this detachment. And I think you're right to characterize my position as being much more worried about the men who are checking out than the men who are acting out. Mm. The men who act out get the headlines. But for every one man who does something terrible and newsworthy, there are millions that we should be worried about who are going the other way. And I'm really, I, I get very concerned when an analysis is offered. I think one just landed in my inbox a few moments ago, I think, where you know a mass shooter is, ah, classic crisis of masculinity, loneliness, et cetera. This is what happens, right? And even, I've had even people, quite thoughtful people, say to me, yeah, yeah, we really do need to worry about boys and men. Otherwise, they'll all become mass shooters. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of thought. And I find that to be really unhelpful because it, it it's, First of all, I think it's quite offensive to, to a lot of these men, which is to say that just a, there's an incipient mass shooter in all of them. Um, uh, it tars them with the broader brush, but it also just misses the fact that violent crime has massively dropped in recent decades, including a sexual assault and everything. I mean, we've become so much more peaceful. Like, and because most violence is from men, and uh, that isn't that is an area where there's a difference on average, but the distributions don't overlap very much. There's a massive difference on average, right? Largely because of testosterone. Um, so society has become so much more peaceful, much less male violence. I mean, the 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 the, the typical man today is so much less violent than the typical man was even 40 years ago. It's an extraordinary mm. drop. So that's the backdrop, right? Much, 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 much less male violence. And then, of course, you get these exceptions. But in this case, the exceptions are proving the rule. And so I'm worried much more about the things you referred to, which is detachment, dislocation, retreat, rather than acting out. Mm. And to the extent that actually, you know, there are alternatives online now, including things like video games and pornography, those are always seen as a bad thing. And we can talk about that if you like. I think they're largely in themselves not a bad thing. They might dis except they might displace other activities in the real world. But there's a, a more provocative thought, which is maybe it's good news that yeah. there are those alternatives. Um, because what else would these men be doing um, if they were left, you know, lost, they've lost status, they've lost identity, at least at least now they do have those alternatives. And so I haven't I can't really ground this thought empirically, but but it, there's a there's a possibility that we're being saved by the screens. Mm. Uh, to some extent. But the danger then is that if it's an easier path to take, men might take it and then they avoid some of the harder work to be done, which yeah. we have to do to adapt to the modern world, both romantically, economically, culturally, and educationally. And so I worry that it's a bit of an ease. It's more of an opt-out uh, than an act-out. Yeah. It, it, I think it's such an interesting counterfactual thought experiment of what, what the culture would look like without those two items, right? That people are I think in some ways, understandably concerned about the effect of long-term porn use and access to free porn along with video games on men. But if, if both of those things weren't available, what would single detached testosterone-driven young men by the millions be doing? Um, I think there's good reason to think that it, the, the, you know, the violent crime data that you were just speaking about would not be as, as rosy as it looks. Yeah, well, that was the concern of the, the social conservatives in the 70s, some of whom I engaged with in the book, like George Gilder and Jeffrey Dench and others, which was look, if men end up without a clear role, if the women's movement gets its way and women become economically independent, they won't need men anymore 
So the men will be left to their own devices. Men left to their own devices are a dangerous group. What we're going to have is these marauding bands of like Mad Max style men, um, incredibly violent, not attached, uh, et cetera. And that hasn't happened. Even though the first thing did happen. So women have secured a huge degree of economic independence. There are a lot of men now who, to some extent, are culturally redundant, if not economically redundant. And we haven't seen this spike in violence. In fact, we've seen exactly the opposite. And so, yeah, I agree. I just, obviously, we don't know, but I think it's perfectly plausible to say that things could be a lot worse absent those alternative forms, uh, forms of spending your time. We talked about the data related to education specifically, and I'd love to spend a little bit more time based uh, on a, a, a data-driven fact-driven um, component to our conversation related to what else we know about the state of, of men and boys today. Again, we, we've already talked about some of the data related to you know, university degrees, and you, you, know, you go into some fascinating stuff in the book related to you know, degrees related to, to dentists. And at one point, a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2020, every editor-in-chief of every Ivy League school was a woman. Um, mm-hmm. I think the majority of, of MDs also were are now being awarded to women. What's some of the other data that convinces you that you know, men in general in our society are, are in peril that I think is, you, know, you think is worth the, the public knowing about? Well, I think that those the sort of small stats let's let's distinguish maybe between let's try this out big stats and small stats yeah so you get these big stats which are like college enrollment right because we already talked about the fact i mean college campus is now 60 percent female women ahead and every that, that they talk about millions of people in the labor market which we could talk a bit more about but in the labor market most men today earn less than most men did in 1979 whereas the median woman is 35 percentage points better off and there's been a rise across the board. Um, And so those are big data points. But then you get these small data points, like the one you just mentioned about Ivy League colleges. And in fact, the same was true of all law review journals at the top 16 law schools. Every single one of them, I think it was in 2021, was edited by a woman. And then another another small stat, and again, it's one of the sort of breadcrumbs along the way that leads you to think, I need to write about this. There's something deeper going on here. Was the massive difference in studying abroad and volunteering. Hmm. And so studying abroad in every subject, two to one, women to men. AmeriCorps, the domestic uh, volunteering program, two to one, women to men. The Peace Corps overseas, two to one, women to men. In the UK, voluntary service overseas, the equivalent of the Peace Corps, 70% women. And and so you're seeing all these stats, which are like this relatively small numbers of people there you're talking about. So this is not like a, and it's not, does it matter? Mm. I don't know, but it's just fascinating when you start to see that because you know, it's like, and no one had any good answers to it. Like why are women so much more likely to pack their bags and go and study abroad. What's going on there? And it leads me to think that there are issues here around agency and motivation, kind of get up, get up and go-ness. And that we've we've had this incredibly empowering message around women, which is I think being the new script around femininity is incredibly empowering. Mm. And it's been very successful and it's really great. I mean, it's it's the you go girl. It's just a fantastic, I love it. But what's the message to men? Uh, the presumption has been, well, they, they don't need a message. They'll, they'll be fine. But that's not true. And absent the previous set of incentives they had around traditional roles, 
they're in a world where they don't so my my sons are growing up in a world they don't have the same incentive structure around them that my father had mm. but they've also been in a world where w- the women are just smoking them educationally and all the language is about f- about feminine female empowerment what do they do what's the message to them and absent a strong message maybe we shouldn't be surprised that they're just yeah you know, a little bit more drifty <laughs> than yeah. the women yeah. And, you know, to me, you are the perfect person to be writing this book. Not only are you a scholar in, in this in this area of research, but you also have raised three boys yourself. And, you know, I would love to get your thoughts and maybe just focus some time on if there are young men or men in general who watch this or are listening to this, who identify with a lot of what you just mentioned. They feel detached they feel adrift they don't see the kind of the natural incentives that may have been there for men a generation ago to you know self-actualize and to get out of bed in the morning and to struggle and to push themselves how do you think about you know advice or and i want to get into mm-hmm. you know the jordan petersons and the andrew tates which mm-hmm. i know i know you've written about but mm-hmm. maybe if we could focus specifically on what you think the you know, the, the right pieces of advice or the right um, pieces of motivation that you think are are worth men contemplating that might actually spark an intrinsic desire to go and begin to, you know, as Jordan Peterson says, you know, clean your room and make your bed and go out and, and work. Um, how do you think about that? How would you respond? Yeah. So I think what's positive about that aspect of Peterson's message is that focus on agency. I like that. I think it's important to say the world doesn't owe you anything anymore, right? So you're going to have to show, you're going to have to be agentic. Um, what I what I don't like is that it underemphasizes the structural barriers that that men are facing. He he individualizes the problem uh, in a way that actually everyone's individualizing the problem of men right now. It's just that mm. the conservatives like him say, stand up straight with your shoulders back, become more of a man in some ways. And do you notice I just couldn't stop myself from, sitting up straight when i said that <laughs> it's like okay it's like it's like jordan's here he's here somewhere he's in all of us <laughs> sit up sit up straight and i gotta tell you i wish my sons all read the peterson book i wish they'd paid more attention to the one about clean your room um <laughs> but but it's 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 still a sense of like it's on you and on the left of course there's this sense of well yeah you just need to get all that toxic masculinity you know, out of you. Um, and then you'll be fine, right? If you just, if you drop the misogyny, you'll be okay. Become more like a woman. So one of my lines is that the left says, be more like your sister. And the right says, be more like your father. And men are like, wait, that doesn't work. Uh, I don't want to be my sister, but I can't be like my father. And so they're both, but they both locate the problem at the individual level. All of that said, I do think that the message, and this is like here, I'm speaking from personal experience, as well as just from the scholarship is, the world where you didn't have to show agency and purpose has gone. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do this to, under your own steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that sense of being under your own power mm-hmm. uh, and having direction and purpose is just much, much more important now. And I think that's a message that's been really strongly given to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see that. And I th- you feel men being a bit underpowered now. And I think that's because of this sense of like, where am I supposed to go? Where's the power to come from? But do it, and I'll give you a personal example in a moment, but do it under your own steam because it turns out that if you want, let's say, assume you're straight, this is probably true for gay men too, your your potential future partner probably wants someone who's got their shit together, 
has a purpose in life, is going somewhere, right? Has has an idea about where to go to dinner tonight. Mm. It's not going to say it's up to you. Has has goals for themselves. And it's just second order what the goals are. It's just like a sense of like, okay, I'm 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 under my own steam. Um, and also you're going to be a father one day, presumably. And although it's difficult for young men sometimes because that can feel like a distant prospect, your kids are going to need you and they're going to need you to be providing for them, but not only in the old way, but in the new way as well. And hopefully you're going to model for them what it means to be a mature man in the modern world. So again, get your shit together. And so that's where I think the Petersonian stuff is quite powerful because it does send a, a message of uh, agency to men. And it says, okay, pick yourself up. I'll give you an example. Like one of my kids was at college. He dropped out of college. Mm. Uh, I should say stopped out of college because he's gone back now because he fulfilled a lifelong dream to become an esports coach. Mm. Uh, coaching Rainbow Six Siege, professional Rainbow Six Siege team. He'd wanted this throughout his adolescence. One of the reasons he you know, torched high school was because all of his passion and intelligence and energy went into coaching Rainbow Six Siege, which I got to tell you, particularly his mother, to some extent me, didn't think was the best route. We actually thought, why didn't you graduate high school and go to college and boring things like that rather than spend all your time coaching a video game? Um, but he carried on. And then he called one day and he said, hey, dad, I've been offered a chance to go and coach a professional team. Um, what's the, And so what's the deal? He said, well, they'll fly me to Las Vegas, give me an apartment and pay me fifty or $60,000 a year plus bonus. Do you think I should do it? I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. And and it was like you'll always regret it if you don't, right? That'll be the path not taken. And it tended, you know, as it turned out, he didn't do it for all of that all that long. But in the process, he had to fire and fire people and mm. learned a lot about politics and had a blast and did all this stuff. But the most important thing was, I said to him, "This is entirely your doing. The idea that you becoming a professional esports coach was anything to do with your parents is obviously laughable. And I'm incredibly proud of you because mm. this is you." This is your dream. This is you propelling yourself. And it doesn't matter what else it, it, it is. It's like, and so make it about you. Like, you just go for it. And and again, that's the message that I think the women's movement has really given to women. And the and, and men are still stuck between this old world where it's like your role was going to fall in your lap and this new world where you've got to go get it yourself. Mm. And, and that's the gap I think a lot of men are falling into and why they're so open to someone coming along and just telling them what to do. Right, yeah. I have to tell you that that son never made his bed, never tidied his room, but he's definitely he's definitely under his own propulsion. Yeah, there's something. Uh, one of my favorite interviews. I've said this before on the show that I've done was is with one of my favorite Jungian writers named uh, Jim Hollis, who I think will end up being maybe a second version of a Jordan Peterson in five or 10 years, because so much of what he talks about is exactly what you just said of basically mm -hmm. taking the Jungian idea of individuating of taking your own inner weirdness um, and talents and following your own path forward. And, you know, that I think in, in his mind is part of what the modern hero's journey really is, is, is taking the, the uniqueness that each person possesses. And he mostly is a counselor for for men and that he told me this on the show that when he first started being a counselor he's now in his early 80s he had you know nine out of every 10 people who came to see him and he's fully booked and is a relatively famous guy now 
when he started, it was nine, nine women for every one guy. And now it's inverted. Um, and a lot of his books I think are, um, they remind me of a, in many ways, sort of wiser, softer, um, uh, books akin to like a Peterson type. And I, I go back and consult his stuff constantly. Cause I think he's just, he's just so great, but I want to get back to, to Peterson as a phenomenon, because I know, mm. you know, you, you, have recently written an article about him and that you know to me in following the arc of his career he he seemed to become almost like a digital father for millions of young men and when i first moved to austin 4 years ago i went to see him when he was on his book tour for the 12 rules for life book in the one of the biggest venues in austin it was sold out with thousands of people who were there and i know he replicated that all over um, the, the country and the world. And, you know, you just talked about some of the, uh, components uh, to him and, and his work that, you know, that you have or your perspective on him. I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, anything else that you make of that, of that man and that phenomenon. And I, I do want to pivot to, to, um, Andrew Tate, who I know you also talked about, mm -hmm. but, you know, in general, my macro view of, of how you're writing about this is that in the vacuum of a kind of cultural archetype or a um a north star generally speaking for men men have a natural thirst for role models and people to emulate and stories that are driving their life and i think this is fair to say based upon your book that in in so much of the focus that has been given in many ways, rightly so, to women prospering over the last many decades, that 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 no longer really exists along with the crumbling of male opportunities in you know technical trades and um, kind of you know union work that has been decimated, certainly from my hometown where I come from and in, in kind of the rust belt. And in the wake of you know, kind of a lot of men losing a a sense of what it means to be a, a man today. There is obviously a a hunger for strong, competent, accomplished men to give direction uh, for for men. It's a long statement there, but I'd love mm -hmm. to just put that to you and get your general thoughts on anything else you might think about the Peterson phenomenon in general. And then I want to shift to to the the Tate phenomenon too. Okay. Well, one of the problems with talking to someone who's uh, engaged with the work so much, Dan, is that you've done a pretty good job of laying it out. But uh, so, but I maybe could add a couple of things. I essentially agree with what you've just, you know, what you've just said, and it's it's a correct characterization of my position as well. Um, you know, I now I see Peterson as a gigantic listening ear. I mean, he's a psychologist by training, so it's appropriate. And he just stumbled across this huge reservoir of human need. I mean, it like he wasn't. He didn't set out to find yeah. it. He did all kinds of stuff to draw you know, draw attention. But he's like someone that's just digging in their backyard and like hits an oil well. Yeah. Um, and then of course you're gonna you're gonna drill it. So I don't blame him for that. But I do think it was kind of semi-accidental. But he's genuinely compassionate. He does he he listens. And and the fact that just basically by listening and suggesting you make your own bed and take responsibility for your life means you sell five million books. And to have a global sellout tour is a data point that anybody serious about understanding society cannot ignore. 
Uh, and that anybody who just dismisses all this as just it's just misogyny is missing is really missing something very important, which is he is filling this need. I like your description of his digital father figure. I think that's right. And he's because he's willing to lay out a script. He's willing to say like this is how to be within certain considerable limits. I would say that just makes him an incredibly attractive figure. So I think the the broader the broader point, and I've been thinking more about this even since I finished the book, is just like what's the script? Mm. Mature masculinity. And I, th- I think of this now as like we had a script which was like the old one, breadwinner husband, and we tore that up um, because of the rise of women's economic independence. There used to be a script for women, you know, you're going to be a wife and mother. We tore that up, but we replaced it with this incredibly empowering new script, which we've talked about, right? So there's this new script now for being a woman, which is really incredibly positive, but we didn't replace the male one. Mm. And so the result is basically a lot of men have been thrust onto the stage and had the script torn out of their hands or torn up in front of them, literally as they enter the stage. And so they're doing the only thing you can do, which is improvise mm. and making it up as they go. And then from walking on from the wings, a Jordan Peterson figure saying, I got you. Mm. This is what to do. This is how to be. And so that's an incredibly important moment. And so I think to the extent that masculinity has to be scripted, and I think it does, if anything, even more than femininity does, as a social and cultural construct, then if we're not doing it, we as in broader society and mainstream institutions, then of course other people are going to do it. Hmm. So to that extent, the scriptlessness of men's lives now creates this massive demand, and then Peterson meets it. Then, of course, enter Andrew Tate, <laughs> this Romanian-British internet personality, who is, the way I think about him now, and I can't remember if I wrote this in the piece or not uh, for Unheard, but he is basically making people nostalgic for Peterson in the same way that people got nostalgic for George W. Bush as soon as Trump got elected, right? I can't tell you the number of liberal friends they had who started saying, oh, Bush, he was pretty good, actually. Yeah, he's no, no, that isn't what you said. You thought he was the devil incarnate. So everything's relative, it turns out. And, you know, by comparison to the absolute the horrifying misogyny of many of Tate's comments, um, you know, Peterson does seem like this tweedy, harmless Canadian professor. Um, but again, the the fact of his popularity is is I think it's it's confused the reason for his popularity. So, you know, I don't I don't know. What, I'd love to know what your view of Tate is because I'll tell you that my son told me months ago, six months before I finished the book, you have to write about Andrew Tate. I said, "Who's Andrew Tate?" I saw some clips. I ignored him. Of course, my son was right. Hmm. Um, and now everyone's like, "You don't mention Andrew Tate in your book." <laughs> so. Yeah. He was right. He saw it early because he's in the right demographic. He's twenty. He's twenty years old, and so everybody, like everybody, he knows knows about Andrew Tate. But he's just like a new and darker version of Pete. Of yeah, I I would even say a darker version of Peterson. That's not fair to Jordan Peterson, actually. But he really is. He's he's tapping into a similar well, but I think in a much more invidious way. Yeah, I know you you mentioned this in in that article that his TikTok videos, Andrew Tate's TikTok videos have been viewed 12 billion times. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about him enough, honestly, to make an informed, uh, you know, particularly thoughtful comment on on the phenomenon that is him. But just in the little that I have spoken to him, I mean, he or uh, that I know about him. You know, he's 20 years younger, 30 years younger than Peterson. So he's a younger version of a of a you know masculine figure and he does exude 
that hyper alphaness that I think a lot of men who are not doing particularly well or are not particularly satisfied with their lives, it is a very seductive um, persona to potentially adopt in an attempt to succeed professionally, attract more women, get respect that you don't feel like you are having right now. That that hard ass edge, I think, can yes. be appealing to a lot of you know nice guys who spend most of their days on a computer and don't have a lot of you know excitement or interest in in people that um, they may you know they may want to get um, their attention of and. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And do you have any other? I don't know how much you have yeah. watched his stuff. If you have any oh, other views on a fair amount um, now, I mean, there's yeah. still quite a lot on there. The one thing I would recommend if people are interested in him, and of course, there's always the danger of drawing more attention to him, but he did a, a Piers Morgan sat down with him. Uh, and I would, I think that's a very good way to get a sense of him. Um, but I agree. And also, I like, I've talked to a lot of like young men and young women about him more recently and and you're right he's aspirational in that sense they're also um, a lot of them are, are also able to kind of keep quite an ironic distance from him as well i think it's important right not that those 12 billion views are not people just la- all lapping it up and saying yeah you're right some of it was yeah because it can be quite funny mm-hmm. uh too it's almost it's so outlandish and so transgressive that it's always mesmerizing mm-hmm. and i do think actually it does show you that just transgressing against these not is very attractive as well i think the mere act of transgressing against these what some people would see is these kind of narrow views about gender um that people like that they like they like him they they like the fact that he says what he thinks if indeed it is what he thinks um despite how outrageous it is because yeah. that seems to be him quotes being his own man and i think that being your own man phrase i'm using the term deliberately there is actually something that is quite appealing to people. I think Donald Trump had some of that as well. Is this, and and actually, that's n- not just attractive to many men, but to some women, because what they're seeing is someone is like, here I am and here I stand. And this is what I believe, and I don't care what anyone else thinks. And I was actually watching an Andrew Tate video with a young woman and a couple of young men, and, she's, and she said, he seems very confident. Mm. Uh, uh, and that's, uh, yes, he does, to a degree that's troubling in many cases. Um uh, there's some rumor he's just converted to Islam. By the way, mm, I don't, I don't know. If, I think that's just breaking news now. But um, so that sense of just absolute security, absolute mm. is, and it cuts so much against this. Particularly if you're a man who are drifting, it's like this, as you say, a really, really attractive figure, very aspirational in that sense. So again, much though I really dislike much of his content, I think we, it's incumbent to understand his appeal yeah. and not to dismiss everyone who's attracted to him as just straightforwardly misogynist, but instead trying to say, what is it here? What's missing here? Because there's something missing in our society that is allowing people like Andrew Tate to get 12 billion views. And so to that extent, I think Andrew Tate is our fault. Yeah, I don't blame Tate. I blame us. I think in many ways, and I, I have heard him say this, Andrew Tate say this in interviews, that akin to the you know, Trump to W analogy, which I thought was was pretty brilliant and spot on i think he knows what he's doing like trump he is more of a troll than anything else yes and he's more of a genius at being able to circulate attention around him than anything else and that as long as the attention gets on him then he's achieved what his goal is just like trump did and that was his that was that was his real 
Yeah. Someone just old... someone just told me, and I haven't fact-checked this yet, but we could probably fact-check in real time if I could do two things at once, but that his father was a professional chess player. I think that's right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm and so you, about. okay, I think, I don't know if he was a grandmaster or whatever, but like, and so, okay, like this is not, like this is not a guy that just kind of he didn't come from the fields, you know. Mm. Not I don't wish that to sound disparaging, but like it's important that people don't dismiss him. Like this is a guy from a very professional, potentially intelligent background. And I agree with you. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think even and I think he's unlike Peterson, mm. who I think gets in trouble for saying what he really thinks. Yeah, even when it's wrong and or batshit crazy. Yeah. Um. Uh, I think that Tate gets into trouble for saying stuff that he, he, even he doesn't really believe. He just knows that in this world of very short form, clickable content, I, I, he's just mastered the algorithm of the short form video content. Yes, uh, and, and, and he incentivized the people through his university to do it, but he's just absolute master of that. Uh, first yeah. to really do it in that big way, I think, just to say, oh, okay, you know, just to make the old, the people who are still doing podcasts, no offense, mm-hmm. seem incredibly obsolete and boring and old fashioned, you know? Yeah. So one other comment I just have to say before we move on to other, other aspects of the book that I want to talk about it related to the Peterson and Tate, uh, comparison is you know when i i have always been fascinated by one aspect of peterson's personality and i should back up a little bit and say that you know gabor mate who i hope to have on the show at some point and i i think is a really perceptive you know writer and thinker who's also canadian also uh, a doctor his analysis of peterson that he, he thinks is not often talked about is is the amount of simmering rage that you feel in him when he talks. And I had never quite had the words to put my finger on something specifically, but I, as soon as I heard that word, that rage word, it, it did click with me like, that that is something that I think I had always felt in watching so many of Peterson's interviews. And Tate has that as well. I think the, one of the major differences between the two is that Peterson openly weeps very often so you can oscillate between this extremely confident competent fast talking brilliant mind and someone who reads a comment from one of his youtube followers and is is crying openly um i also thought that was part of peterson's massive appeal and i think you kind of just alluded to this earlier is the fact that he he had an empathy periodically about him towards people who were suffering, especially boys that um, I think indicated that he actually cared in a way that a lot of men, frankly, just don't feel cared for. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I've been struck by his genuine empathy Yeah, for many of the people he's talking about. You don't, you don't fake that, which Tate has none of that. Tate's just, it's all your fault basically. Um, and, and I think that's obviously speaks to Peterson's own training, his own sensitivity. I mean, he's obviously got some, many of his own problems, mm. um, in terms of mental health and so on that, that he's been quite open about. But, but again, I think that's exactly right. I think he is unusual actually as a man for being so open about his emotions and, and yeah. weeping so openly. I think it speaks to his sort of sensitivity too. And so again, I think that's very, very attractive to people. You can't, you can't watch him. And not going to get a sense of that. I, rem- I remember listening to a talk he gave, and the last question of the evening was from a guy that said, "I was going to kill myself last week, but I decided not to, and to come to this lecture instead, in case I heard something that would make me think differently about it." And the way Peterson dealt with that question 
was absolutely magnificent. Yeah. And it was, he was straight talking. He said, well, it's a good question, right? Why do we live? Why, why do we continue? Right. And then he talked him through it in a way that I just thought was extraordinary. I mean, imagine you're on a stage, you get that question from, from this man and his, his constructive, straightforward empathy for that young man was mm. just visible on display to everybody in that room. Yeah. And I, I agree that that's a big part of his magic and that a lot of young men, men generally, but especially young men just don't feel that. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of their engagements and and from society more broadly. And so he does feel like this incredibly refreshing break in that sense of a lack of empathy that a lot of young men feel. And again, it's, he's not doing anything magic, right? He's just <laughs> showing empathy. And that's why I think it was this kind of listening ear. I think actually what Peterson says is actually much, much less important than how he listens how he empathizes, how he signals he's on your side. He's, 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 he's much more ear than mouth. Mm. And I think people make the mistake of just focusing on what he says, like the stuff he says on climate change. is just batshit crazy. <laughs> in like, but instead you'll get these headlines. He went on Rogan, I think. And, and my, you know, my wife and I were listening to it on the way up, and so it's quite good. And so he thinks out loud, right? And so you're always going to get this proportion. And there was this 10-minute thing about climate change, and my wife happens to know a lot about this more than I do. And we're both looking at each other going, this is insane. Yeah. And ignored it, right? No one should go to public announcement. No one should go to Jordan Peterson for advice on climate change policy, right? But he had some other stuff that was good. But of course, all the headlines the next day were from all these climate change scientists saying, you know, Peterson dangerously wrong on climate change, says climate change scientist. And you're like, yeah, yeah duh. I think we knew that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to a friend about this last night that, you know, I think she and I have both been following his career for, yeah, he's been in the public eye for eight years or so now. And his early videos really were about his sweet spot, which was his knowledge of psychology and, mm -hmm. you know, human nature and history and, you know, the Bible. And he he's a fascinating yeah. mind who knows so much information. And I think to your point, when he sticks to what, he has spent his entire career becoming an expert in that's you know possibly really where he should be focusing most of his time but he's human like we all are we all have opinions and we're more likely to be wrong about our opinions if we begin to talk to something that we don't know that much about um yes and unlike most of us he'll keep, he just keeps going he just throws it out i mean he actually he specifically says when he comes on stage i'm just going to talk about this problem and he throws stuff out there and you know, he doesn't he doesn't edit himself particularly yeah. and so that does mean you know there's a lot there's a lot of rubbish in there um mm -hmm. but there's some good stuff too his stuff on i mean he's become quite a good theologian his series on genesis yeah it's just incredibly good yeah i want to talk about and this is a subject i've wanted to talk about on this show as well about men in divorce and i'm old enough now where i have multiple friends who you know have been in 10 year plus marriages some have children and for a variety of reasons the the marriage comes to an end and i know you note this in your in your writing that it is often and i i don't think this is particularly uh well known either that post divorce it is often men who really suffer the most mm -hmm. um and my my understanding as to why that is is because women tend to take on average again um, they tend to take the role of the social organizer, the, so the social networker, the connector for their family and their community. And when that gets severed, you know, these men, you talk about men opting out and isolating, it, it just becomes much, much more likely for men 
in that situation to um, begin to drift and pe- to begin to you know have some pretty serious mental health issues. I certainly have friends that you know, I had one friend who I I knew from work who um, got divorced, had two young daughters, learned a few years after the divorce he was suspicious that his wife was having an affair. She denied it, and then a few years after the divorce, she conceded that she had done this, and it was with one of his best friends. And he came to me and was, you know, speaking like someone who was despairing. And um, I think that story is not one that is um, particularly welcome to be discussed in our, you know, general general culture. You know, men who are suffering in divorce. But I'd love to give you a little mm-hmm. bit of time to talk about your knowledge of what tends to happen to men when they you know, the, who have a family and then that, that family for a variety of reasons severs. One other just quick fact that I believe is true, and I'd love to get your your uh, confirmation on if, if this is correct, is that something like 70 to 80 percent of divorces in America are initiated by women. Um, anyways, I just wanted to put that to you and, yeah. and give you an opportunity to, to speak about that subject. Yeah. So it's about it's about two thirds. OK, uh, so about two to one. Um that's across the whole the whole spectrum of initiated by women. Women uh, are also now less likely than men to say that being married is important to them. Mm. So there's a gap. I don't have the exact numbers off off the top of my head, but there's at least a ten percentage point gap. Uh, so mar- men saying marriage is more important to them. And you're quite right that post divorce, certainly on many measures of well being, mental health, etc., it does seem to be much more negative for men than for women. And I also think it is the reasons, largely for the reasons you've identified, which is this sense of women very often doing more of the emotional labor, particularly within a relationship, maybe just being better at emotional labor generally. Mm. And so to some extent, men's emotional lives is propped up by the marriage. And so once the marriage goes, the props get cut away. Mm. And there's this post-divorce thing, which is like, who gets the friends? And that's when you find out, actually, that, oh, my God, they're actually her friends. Uh, like, like, well, okay, um, because it's difficult to remain friends with both. And so I think it's a bit about that, um, that men suddenly discover that they've invested too much of their kind of emotional life in the marriage and the family. I also think that the sense that men have of their identity being bound into being a husband mm-hmm. is, in, is today greater than the other way around. I think that being a wife is certainly something that many women choose, but actually it's kind of a much more disposable identity in today's world. Whereas being a husband does give a men's sense of, okay, who are you? Like, like what, do you, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And so if you lose that aspect of your identity as well, I think it has bigger bigger effects on, on men than on women. So you know, wifeless men really do struggle in, in modern societies. But again, it might be partly because of this lag because we just haven't learned how to do these things differently in this new world. And I'm pretty hopeful that we will learn to do better. There's a big focus now and there's been a big drop in friendship and especially among men's friendships. And so that's actually something we've really got to start addressing. And so I'm hopeful that we will start course correcting and that men will start to realize that. It's certainly something in my own life. Like I've really talked to my own sons about this Mm. and actually I've been incredibly happy when they've got really good friends Mm. and candidly, even more so when they have really good male friends, you know, mm. when they have just like really strong, solid friends they can go away with and travel with and do stuff with. Because actually, you know, I know how important that's going to be for them going forward. The key is to maintain them, 
even as you enter into marriage and kids. I think there's been a slight sense for men. It's like, well, that was that period. Now I'm into this period. Yeah. Uh, maybe also a bit of reluctance in this new world for men to continue to engage in those male friendships, even post-marriage. Hmm. And everyone's under time pressure. So um, we'll see. And I think it's also true that, that women are just better at taking that physical time to invest in the friendships. W women, everything else equals seem to be just a bit better at friendships than men. And we need to start catching up because marriage is not going to be the substitute anymore. Yeah. One of my favorite interviews that you've done about this book was with Chris Williamson, which I was I was listening to last night and this morning. And I one of my favorite parts of that conversation was towards the end, which was really a conversation. And this is one of my extreme interests. I had David Buss on the show. He was one of the first mm. few guests. I had Joe Henrik on the show a, a couple mm. months ago, um, is viewing life as much as possible in an attempt in an attempt to understand what is going on through an evolutionary lens. And you, you, you and Chris seem to get into the subject of really the role of men historically and what the point of our existence really was from nature. And I'd love to spend a little bit of time just delving into that. And I thought you mm. guys had an incredibly interesting back and forth about whether it, men really were there as I think he or you phrase it as basically an armed gun or if we were there to extract the necessary calories that was required mm -hmm. to feed a human baby through its you know childhood and and adolescence as best you understand it what are the primary theories as to why men are here in the first place how do you make sense of that question generally yeah so i think the the problem of men is sort of always been with us and as Joe Henrik puts it, the the math problem of surplus men has been particularly a problem. And it was Roy Baumeister's work that drew me to the fact that we have twice as many female ancestors as male ancestors, because on our, throughout history, men have only had about a 50% chance of reproducing, which explains from an evolutionary perspective all kinds of stuff like risk like risk taking. Right? It makes much more sense to be high, have more of a tolerance for risk in an environment where, you know, 50% of you only have uh uh sorry you only have a 50% chance rather of reproducing so but it was then chris was in he he'd had roy baumeister on the saying that it was much more of this just the whole point of the hunting and stuff was just to show that you were the better bodyguard yeah they are going and i was citing anna machin's work um in her her book on fatherhood which in turn referenced uh, sarah hurdy's work on the kind of calorific requirements of the newly developed human brain and how that couldn't be done by one so it, it just took more you needed more calories so you needed you needed men to generate a surplus how that surplus was divided up whether it was by the tribe or the family is a second order question but you did need men to generate more calories let's use mm -hmm. that currency for now than they needed for their own consumption so that was new to me. And so what was actually happening was that we were basically just, he was arguing Roy Baumeister's case and I was arguing Anna Machen's case. And both Roy and Anna know a million times more about this than either Chris or I. So the thing you need to do is get them on, yeah. honestly, because I am basing it uh, on, a, I think, a pretty reasonably established sense that fatherhood in this kind of more modern sense, by, by which I mean a few thousand years old, 
really was about this, this the need for men to be providing more generating a surplus um and so the invention of the institution of fatherhood was kind of just about how much longer it took and how many more calories it took to get our kids into you know, semi-independent creatures so i that that may well not be true but it seems to be pretty established in the literature that i know uh and consistent with the evolutionary psych around what it means to be a father and how fathers kind of attached to the kids, their testosterone goes down, as Joe Henrik and others point out. Mm-hmm. And so it does seem to me that we're, we are kind of wired in certain ways to be fathers and fathers in that kind of particularly in an attached way rather than a bodyguard way. And so mm-hmm. I, I think the weight of evidence has still got to be in that direction. Um, but as I say, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't encountered this new idea of Baumeister. So I need to, I need to catch up. Yeah. I know some of your, you know, the data that you talk about in in the book is, and I think this is partic- particularly pernicious in some of the, you know, the lower socioeconomic communities, minority communities in the country about, uh, and the data on this is is truly crazy. At least it was crazy to me when I started to learn about it about, you know, the number of African American children who are ra- who are being raised in homes without fathers, and it's well over fifty percent. And that's a massive shift from, I think it was the early 1960s in which it was in the low 80s, um, low 80s of children being raised with fathers in the home and yes, how much that around. has changed yeah. since since then. And it's dipped a little bit, as I understand it, in um, you know families with uh, you know, parents with a college education down something from roughly low 90s to low, low 80s percentages, something like that, but not nearly as drastic. Um, as, as what's happened in some of the you know poor and uh, more min- minority communities, what do we know about what happens to kids who are raised without parents in the household, without without fathers in the household? I should say. Yeah. So the the first thing is that your your basic description of the trends is right. What I would add to that is that all of the recent the big recent changes have been much more on class dimensions than race dimensions, mm. and so the the black family has always looked pretty different. Uh, in many ways to white families uh, and th- that's for reasons that are probably pretty obvious around the different economic conditions that black families faced uh, and so for example like black black women are much are more likely to be the main breadwinner in the mm-hmm. family than black men black women are much more educated than black men uh, and so and these are not new findings so in a sense what's happening in a lot of white families now is something that's been happening for much longer in black families and so I would emphasize the class dimension of this now, which is, of course, overlapping with race hugely. And the educational divide on marriage is overlapping with race. But it does seem like if you look at the recent trends, actually, the kind of trends have leveled out mostly for black families, but they're really massively opening up by class, which I think you indicated. Mm. And so I do think that means that for that life in those sorts of families is very different. And in particular, what it means is that we have to move, I think, and here is where social conservatives strongly disagree with me, move away from the idea of marriage is the glue between between men and children, indirectly, usually through the mom, right? So if you think, I think if you think of the old fashioned marriage as direct relationship between mom and kids, direct relationship between dad and mom, and a dotted line from dad to kid. Hmm. He didn't have that strong a direct relationship with the kids because his job was to bring home the bacon. Um, that model has to shift to one where there's a more direct relationship between fathers and children because it's not clear what the relationship between the fa- between the father and the mother is going to be. And I don't think we can bet on marriage. We certainly can't bet on old-fashioned marriage. 
as a condition of economic dependency of the woman on the man and that sharp division of labor that's that's gone that's in the rearview mirror and in this sense actually black fathers are quite interesting because what they're showing is that the simplistic idea of a father being either absent or present living with or without away from his children doesn't capture the complexity of the situation mm. actually what matters is the relationship between the parents and the children and whether that that can transcend physical location so fatherhood isn't like taking attendance at a class mm. present or absent this whole idea of an absent father really has to be unpacked because it turns out that and black fathers are more likely to be engaged with their kids if they're not living with the mum than fathers of other races mm. and that's probably partly because it's just it is more common among black families and so it's the relationship that counts and in fact there was one study i found which showed that fathers who were not living with the mother but had a very strong relationship with their kids their kids did better than fathers and the kids of fathers who were living with the mother but had a very distant relationship with their kids right so better to have a divorced dad that you're very close to than a dad who just comes home and goes straight to his study or whatever right yeah and so so What's lost in the debate about structure is relationships are what count. And I feel very strongly that we have to get to a model of fatherhood that's based on that direct relationship between fathers and kids. And I have a whole bunch of policies to try and support that. But the main, but the cultural point here is this, we have just gone through a massive cultural transformation of the very basis of the family. Yeah. Like, to the extent that there was this glue, which was women raise kids economically dependent on men to bring home the bacon the women's movement went straight at that absolutely clearly explicitly said we have to go at that situation and we do know we're in a situation now where 40% of women earn more than the typical man mm. up from 13% in 1979 mm. 40% of breadwinners are now women like this is a whole new world mm. uh, this is not a trivial change this is we have utterly transformed the economic relationships between men and women as the women's movement hoped and as most of us celebrate that let's not be naive about this. That has huge downstream consequences for the roles of men and women. And right now, we haven't paid much attention. Well, this conversation is a good example of us paying attention to it. But yeah. what does that mean for the role of men? And what the conservatives were right about in the 70s is if the women's movement is successful, we're going to have a big question about what to do with the men. They were absolutely right about that. They were wrong about the answer, which was, let's not do it then. Let's keep women in the kitchen. Otherwise, the men will be marauding. That was the wrong answer for all kinds of moral and other reasons, but they were right to be concerned. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating because I will tell you, I mean, so I'm in my mid thirties and so many, I get the sense that so many of my, you know, male friends in the privacy of, um, you know, friendship driven conversation are rather reluctant to engage in having their own kids because of a fear of divorce and the stigma of divorce but may actually be interested in having children of their own and i think if i'm understanding you correctly the the major point is it isn't maintaining the marriage itself that seems to have the long-term benefits for the children it's the strength of the relationship the enduring strength of the relationship of the of the father with the children almost regardless of whether they stay married or not. That's, that's my reading of the evidence, yeah. Now, a, to be fair, a good, a good social conservative critic would say, yes, but that's much easier if you're married. Yeah. And that's true. 
So yeah. I just think it's crazy to deny that that's true. That like if you want strong relationships between both parents and the kids, it's undeniably easier if you're doing that under the same roof. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the context of a marriage or a marriage or a, or equivalently committed relationship, no question. So is it harder? Yes. But in the end, so you have to work harder to maintain those relationships for sure. But it's really just that maintaining that quality of relationship does seem to be the thing that's key. And you are seeing that now. So after divorce now, men are getting a third of the time with kids. There are almost no sole custody arrangements. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there's pretty good evidence now that after divorce, there are strong relationships maintaining between both kids. Now, I will say that's partly because the people selecting into marriage now I think are doing so with a strong commitment to the kids mm. and that commitment survives the dissolution of the marriage. Mm. So the, so the kind, so divorced dads of today are not like the divorced dads of 40 years ago, right? They got married in order to have kids, yeah. putting it too simplistically. And so if the, if the marriage ends, they're still, they still see their role as fathers quite seriously. So there's a selection effect for sure, um, which is not much less true of men who are not married. So when people say, okay, divorced dads are are in their kids' lives much more than, say, previously cohabiting dads. That's true, but I think that's because of a selection effect. The dads who are cohabiting largely weren't planning to have the kid in the first place with that woman. They make a go of it, but it doesn't work out. And so it seems to me that there's this this the intentionality of becoming a father, and sure, ideally with the mum, make it work. But that, that role, the role of father doesn't dissolve along with the marriage. And it's incredibly important that we move beyond seeing marriage as the foundation for the relationship between fathers and children. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a terrific point. I know we are getting a little bit cl- close to the end of the conversation. And I, before we we close with with maybe one more subject, I just want to thank you for um, all the work that you have put into this, because I think this is an extremely important taboo subject that is um, probably uniquely possible to be written from somebody like yourself and uh, you know i think if we are going to have a a sane conversation it has to be based in reality as best we understand it and i i just appreciate the fact that you have given so much of you know your talents and energy to to putting this together and spending so much time on um you know giving voice to uh, you know a lot of the truths of society, but also to a lot of men who I think really are suffering and feel rather invisible. And I'd love to close with, you know, just putting this to you of, you know, where do we go from here? And I I know one of your primary policy suggestions is that potentially we should be starting boys a year after girls in, you know, kindergarten or first grade. So they, they have a little bit more time to develop, to catch up with women based on the um, you know, the, the neuroscience that we know understand about the development of the, the female and male brain. Um, any other closing thoughts as to, you know, mm-hmm. where we can, we can go from here in terms of, you know, cause this is really about, you said this word earlier, it's about flourishing. It's about having both genders living as, as best they can. Um, anything else come to mind as to, yeah. as to, you know, what, wh- how else you, you might think about that for, for men and boys specifically? Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you again for your kind words. And I'll say one one note on that is that I do think it's important for people like me to be engaging in this debate um, with with the sort of policy wonkery and facts and solutions that you'd expect from a Brookings Institution scholar, because it sort of mainstreams it somewhat. And um, Matthew Iglesias had a long review 
of the book over on his Substack, Slow Boring, which is excellent. Um, and he said that the book was earnest, bordering on banal, <laughs> and it was the highest praise imaginable. Uh, I just sort of encourage your listeners to say the book. I, I'm quite proud of how well written the book is, but um, but but the point, the polemic, the, the rhetorical point that like the yes, I want it to be earnest, almost banal. Like this is good. Like this is these are problems. Let's just address them like like sensible people, right? And yeah. then, and I'm a sensible person working at a sensible institution, making what I think are sensible suggestions, which we can agree or disagree with. But I think that making this as a, a conversation among sensible people of goodwill is just hugely important and and i'm i'm proud to have played even a small part in helping to bring that about then i get into some solutions and i i'm glad you raised it because uh, and i encourage people to go and have a look at it actually i deliberately spent a lot of time on solutions risking policy wonkery you know risking how much how much are people really people willing to read about technical high schools right and i estimated about a page um uh but yes, I think we should think about starting schools, uh, boys in school a year later because they're developmental disadvantages. We need a massive recruitment drive of male teachers. We do need much bigger investment in vocational training, including technical high schools and apprenticeships, which disproportionately help boys and men. Mm. I would throw a lot of political capital and financial capital at getting more men into the growing sectors of the economy and like health and education. And by the way, psychology. Which mm. is becoming progressively, I mean, among psychologists under thirty, only five percent are male. Wow! The profession as a whole is twenty nine percent male. So you talked about was it who was it you referred to earlier? The eighty year old psychologist, James Hollis. Yeah, Hollis, who I now look up. But it's like, okay, I'm not surprised he's got all these men because mm. you know where else are they going to go? So get more men into those professions for sure, and then shoring up this new direct model of fatherhood through generous paid leave provision that is attached to fathers and not transferable, equally generous for mothers, as well as a much fairer treatment of unmarried men who really get a very, very, they get the sharp end of the stick um, from the child support system and the access system. And so just revalorizing the importance of fatherhood through public policy. So I'm putting all those ideas out there because I do want this to be a solutions-focused conversation as well. There's been a lot of discussion of these subjects but sometimes they're like the secular equivalent of the Book of Lamentations, um, and so okay, like here's a here's here's a million problems, and then at the end you've got I don't know universal pre-K or something, uh, and so I really did go hard into solutions, uh, and I'm getting lots of disagreement and agreement with those ideas, but at least we're talking about solutions. Mm. And it seems to me that that's an important part of the debate. And one of the things I really wanted to push us to. So I'm thrilled when people say, no, no, I don't like that idea for helping boys in school. Here's another idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, great, I'm, I'm here for that. Because by the way, we just agree there's a problem we need to solve. And that's, that's for me, if we can get to the point where we're saying, yeah, there's obviously a problem here. Let's argue about the solutions. Great. That gets us away from the culture war. It gets us away from lamentation. And it gets us into the maybe less sexy, stuff i don't think i'm going to get 12 billion TikTok views from even the best clip of this conversation dan but let's aim high um certainly not with my discussion of technical high schools or, or your obsession with evolutionary psychology <laughs> <laughs> but this is where the real conversation has to happen yeah i get the sense that this book will be um not only a consciousness raising um piece of art but also will be I just think will be one of the more important books of this this time period. And um, 
it's a real pleasure to be able to do this, Richard. And I can't wait to share this. And we'll we'll aim high with the TikTok video views for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> Andrew I, Tate I, level. <laughs> Andrew Tate level. Um, but more than anything, man, thank you again for yeah. for all the hard work and for doing this. This is a, a real honor for me to be able to do. And, and best of luck with everything. Well, back at you. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for such a thoughtful conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.